up here is uh, my name is Will Cody, and I am the campus minister at, at uh, Austin P for our denomination. I do Reform University Fellowship there, and whenever I have the opportunity to preach, recently we've been hearing from this story, this novella in the Old Testament called the Book of Ruth. So chapter four is our text this morning. It's on page two hundred and twenty-four. If you want to turn there in the Bibles and your pews, it'll also be on the screen though. And this is the very end, the closing section of Ruth. Um, so if you've never read Ruth before, or if you forgot everything since last time, it's been like a month, let's get up to speed and let's uh, enter into the ancient Near East. Let's enter into this um, ancient culture, this ancient time. Um, this book centers around this young woman. Um, she's probably in her young, uh, mid to late 20s, and her name is Ruth. So this all happens way before Jesus was born. This happens even before there were kings in Israel. This was during the lawless time of the judges. And this foreign woman named Ruth, she married the son of this man named Elimelech. And this man Elimelech, he was fleeing Israel. He was fleeing this famine that was happening in his hometown of Bethlehem. But after Ruth marries um, into this family... Within 10 years, her father-in-law, Elimelech, dies. Elimelech. Then her husband dies as well. His name is Malon. And then her husband's brother, Kilion, he dies as well. And all that is left from this once bustling family are these two women, uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And what's the first surprise in this book is that Ruth, this happens way back in chapter 1, Ruth commits to never leaving this mother-in-law of hers, Naomi, the mother of her dead husband. And she follows Naomi all the way back to Bethlehem, to Naomi's family's land to live there. So we have these two women that are left in this family of the deceased Elimelech, living in this traditional patriarchal, with a capital P, patriarchal culture, and these two women are in big trouble. There are no male heirs, and the mother-in-law, Naomi, is too old to have any children, and the daughter-in-law, Ruth, has no husband, and uh, as far as we can tell, she's barren, and this whole family is going to be cut off. They're going to die into extinction. We saw last time that Naomi sends Ruth out with this plan to go out and get married, jump ship from me, I'm death, <laughs> and start a new family with this guy, Boaz. He seems like a good guy we met in chapter 2. But because Ruth, uh, of her love and her commitment to Naomi, when she meets with Boaz, she hatches a plan not to just get married to Boaz and ride off and have her own family, but to start a new life with Naomi. That Boaz, because Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. We're getting kind of in the weeds of like, uh, how these cultures work. Stay with me. Because Boaz is related to Elimelech, Elimelech could buy this family land of Naomi and her dead husband. He could buy it. He could redeem it to himself. And then if he was to marry Ruth and they had a baby, then that baby could be dedicated to this family of Elimelech. And so they'd have the land, they'd have a baby, to inherit that land, and this family would have a restart with this potential future baby. Ruth tells Boaz, because you're a male, 
and you can do this land buying thing. You buy the land. And because I'm a woman, and maybe if God blesses us, I can do this baby making thing, and I will bear the baby. And we will save this family at great cost to ourselves. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And this is all Ruth's idea. But Boaz, amazingly, he's down with this plan. This is how the last chapter from last time, this is how it ends. He's down, to this, he's down with this plan. There's one little hiccup, though, is that there's this closer relative who has first dibs on buying this land from Naomi and from Elimelech's family. So Boaz says, I need to go deal with this situation first. I need to talk to this guy and figure out what to do with this guy who's kind of in the way. So that's where we are for today for our text. Boaz is in search of this other guy, this cousin, this redeemer guy, who is ahead of him in line to buy the land. We're all caught up now. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. We're just going to read uh, verses 1 through 10. I think I have the slide set up this way. 1 through 10, and then we'll go back and read the rest later. This is God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you're going to buy it, buy it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. There's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also buy it from Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That means to continue the family. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. This is an ancient text, okay? This is like thousands of years old, okay? To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, Elimelech's sons. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of the Lord, it stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we get into this uh, ancient text that you have preserved for us, that you have written for us, that you have given us to teach us about you, we ask that you would help us and that we would understand it and be able to apply it to our lives, apply it to our hearts, and that we may love other people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in college, one time, I mentioned this one time, I worked for this flooring, industrial flooring company. We go into factories, warehouses, and uh, we would tear up their floors and put down new ones. 
And I mentioned that the chemicals that we used in that uh, to make these floors caused this terrible allergic reaction where my face swelled up and I couldn't, could barely see. My eyes were so swollen together. Um, so I had to quit that job. But before I quit, I remember one time we were working at a Coca-Cola plant in Monroe, Louisiana, and I was tasked with putting this special, this special kind of flooring, this special kind of concrete down where these big uh, machines were going to be sitting, the legs of these machines were going to be right there. So they, it was a special kind of flooring thing, the cement, to, uh, to support the floor. And my supervisor told me that I had to be really careful with the proportions of the oils and the epoxy and the sand that all got mixed together. And there were some other precautions I had to do. And I remember thinking how this, like, I remember actually thinking, this is so trivial, this is so mundane, this is not worth giving any real attention to. All I wanted was to get this unimportant task over with, check it off, get it done, get paid, and go home. Go back to Knoxville and, get, and go home. So I wasn't really paying attention too much when I was doing this task. So about an hour later, I noticed that some of my coworkers were just kind of standing there looking at the floor that we had just put down. And I looked over the very dry floor and every single little section that I had done was wet. So some chemical was coming up through the epoxy and pooling on the top, and it looked really bad. <laughs> and I asked my co one of my coworkers, I was like, what is happening with the floor there? And he was, like, he was like, some idiot did that section and didn't put enough sand in the mix, and now the floor's not setting right. And I just kind of like... I just kind of like stepped back and <laughs> tried to disappear because that was my section. That was all my fault. I did not pay attention and do that right. I was hoping my supervisor would never see me. But luckily, my supervisor, he did see the floor and he was able to fix it just in time. He was able to dig it out and fix the floor. Or else the whole, basically the whole floor would have had to have been redone. But I remember thinking, if my boss had just told me that this would happen, I would have done it differently. If I'd only known the bigger picture here and the ramifications for my actions, that this could have potentially ruined the whole floor, this whole expensive floor, could have affected everyone on the team, then I would have done it better and I would have paid attention and would have done exactly what my supervisor told me to do. So I, so I was kind of trying to blame him for not like spelling it out for me. It was all my fault. Um, I, 20 years ago, in Monroe, Louisiana, I was given this big job, this little job, a part of this big thing, and I was given this responsibility that was part of this big picture that I didn't realize at the time what the big picture was, and I was not faithful with my small part of it. I didn't listen to or really trust my supervisor, didn't give him much credence. This guy that was directing, orchestrating uh, this whole thing. Because if I had, if I had trusted him, I would have listened to him. The people in our story today, they also don't know the big picture either. They don't know where all of this is headed, where all of this is going, how God is weaving all of this stuff together. But unlike me, they are delightfully serving their supervisor, the Lord, and trusting him, even they don't know exactly how this is all going to turn out, how God's going to work this all together. Uh, it can be really easy to forget the gravity in the gravity of our day-to-day -day decisions, what we commit to, what we decide not to commit to, uh, all the things that the Lord has given us to do for him. But the Lord gives them, and he gives us, give, he gives us good rules and good commandments as we seek to live, not for our, ourselves, but to live for him 
and to live for others, to live for others and for him. This is what our text, this is what Ruth kind of, in a sense, is all about. Uh, The big idea for our text today is that the Lord is faithful and he is trustworthy. And if he is faithful and trustworthy, you should break the rules open. We'll explain what that means. We should break the rules open and we should live, you should live for something bigger than you. You should break the rules open and you should live for something bigger than you. So our first point, break the rules open. What does that mean? Look with me in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. So we're just going to go through this text and just explain what's going on here. So after meeting with Ruth on the threshing floor, the chapter before in chapter 3, Boaz rises early and he heads to the city gates. Now the city gates are where the people would get together in a town like this. This is where they would meet. This is where business happened. This is where life happened in Bethlehem and other small towns like this. It's like Walmart and City Hall and downtown commons in the springtime all mixed together in one place. And if you wanted something done, if you wanted to meet with someone, if you wanted some legal decision made, or if you wanted to buy land or sell land, this is where you went. And as Boaz is sitting there, lo and behold... This cousin comes by, this mutual relation with uh, Elimelech. And we'll just call him cousin for the rest of this. Cousin, because uh, it never names him. And we'll see, maybe see why in a few minutes. So cousin comes by. So Boaz grabs cousin and makes cousin sit down. And then he grabs 10 elders to be like witnesses. And he has them sit down. And he wastes no time getting right down to business. So in verses 3 and 4, Boaz tells cousin that Naomi's land is up for sale. Now, it's cousin's job, because he was the closest relative to Naomi that was still alive, that if Naomi is selling this land, that he is supposed to buy it from her. And he's supposed to buy it from her to support her, to take care of her, to make sure she's not dying of hunger. So she has something to live on. So he tells him, now's the time, cuz, now's the time to buy the land. And if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And predictably, on the face of it, there's a very predictable answer. The cousin's like, yeah, let's go, Boaz. Let's buy it. I'm going to buy this land. And this is kind of predictable, and this is the first reaction. This should be kind of the first reaction, if you don't look too deeply, because this is a great deal for cousin, okay? Because what this means is that cousin can buy this field from Naomi, and even though it might be kind of costly at first to buy the land, Come spring, he can start uh, planting his own crops on there. He can start doing his own work on there. And he can slowly but surely, or maybe quickly, begin to recoup the money. And now he's actually going to be working at a gain instead of a loss. He can start building up his own wealth with this property that he's going to be buying and pass it down his own family line. And the reason this is a really good deal for him is because usually what happens is, we mentioned this last time, in Israel, if you buy a field in Israel, you're not really buying a field. You're actually renting a field. And there's this thing that happened every 50 years, the year of Jubilee would happen, and all lands would revert to their original owners. And what's different about Naomi's case is that Naomi's family is dying out. So this cousin he would get to keep this land forever. It would never revert back to Naomi's family because Naomi's family is all dead. They're all going to die. 
So this is a huge win. This is a huge win for Cousin. He likes this. He is ready to go with this deal. But then, in verse 5, Boaz reminds him what this is actually going to entail. Okay? Cousin has apparently forgotten about this uh, poor, foreign, single, childless widow named Ruth that is actually part of this deal as well. Because it's not only Naomi's land, it also belongs to Ruth. Because Naomi's son is the inheritor, and Ruth was married to him. So Boaz says in verse 5, this isn't just Naomi, Ruth's involved here too. You're also buying it from Ruth. And Boaz tells him if he buys the land, remember, hey, cuz, remember why you are buying this land. What's the purpose? All these redeeming laws in the Old Testament, um, what is the purpose of all of these? He says in verse 5, he says at the end of it, What's the purpose? It's to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. It's to perpetuate, that's the way you're going to do this, is to help people. To continue the line of Naomi and her dead husband and their dead sons. Boaz is telling him, this isn't some real estate business opportunity for you. God gave us these rules. In fact, all of God's laws in the Bible, but God gave us these rules about inheritance and redeeming poor people to save and rescue them when they're in trouble. And Naomi is in trouble. And when you buy this land from Naomi, you're not just going to fulfill the letter of the law here, because when it comes to being a redeemer, you're not just going to hand her a check and walk away. That would, be, that would work out great for you. It would work out really great for you, but Naomi is still destitute, and her family is still on the verge of extinction. That's bad for Naomi. No, you are going to, what Boaz is doing in front of everybody, he's saying, bro, if you're going to take this up, you are going to do what's behind the letter of the law. And what's behind the letter of the law is love for the destitute. What's behind buying this property from Naomi is perpetuating the name of the dead. The purpose of these laws is love. And loving Naomi here means continuing her family, which is on the brink of extinction. And Cousin apparently gets the gist in front of everybody. Maybe he's a little embarrassed too, but Cousin gets the gist here that he understands the whole plan that Ruth and uh, Boaz have been working out since the last chapter, that the only way, the only hope for continuing her family and producing children to carry on Elimelech's family name and line is to marry Ruth himself and produce a child to carry on Elimelech's name and Elimelech's family. That's the only option here for saving this family and continuing perpetuating the name. And he understands this because in verse 6, how does he respond as soon as he figures out what all this is going to entail and what it's going to be costly for him? What does he say in verse 6? He says, well, if you put it that way, Boaz, I can't go through with this without hurting my own inheritance. This is going to be too costly for me. Boaz, I'm not, in, I'm not into this. And what Cousin is saying is, if I am, notice how much of a loss this would be for Cousin and how much it will be for Boaz if he goes through with this. Cousin is saying that if I embark on this mission to save this family by buying this land and taking Ruth as my wife and having a child with her, that means that I am not going to get Naomi's land forever. That was a great deal, but that's all up in smoke. It's going to go to the child that they have, that, that uh, cousin has with Ruth. 
It's going to go to that child. Not only that, that child is not going to have his last name. It's going to have Elimelech's last name. It's going to have Malon's last name with this whole other family. And then all the stuff that they've invested in this land and property, all that is going to stay there in the property. That's going to stay with this property and the landowner who's going to be this child from another family. So basically, he's understanding, if I take Ruth on, I'm going to be doing all this work, I'm going to be putting all this money, all this time, into somebody that's not even in my family. Why would I do that? And he says, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to drain my finances for this family that I don't even care about. And this does not benefit me at all. So the Redeemer, cuz, cousin, he's out. Boaz responds to this. This is what Boaz has been waiting for. He takes off his sandal. He holds it in the air. I'm not sure exactly how that worked. Very dramatically pulls out his sandal and he makes a speech declaring his intention in verse 9. He says, you are witnesses this day that I... Now notice what he's saying. We're going to have uh, some background here. He's saying, you are witnesses to everybody this day I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, her dead husband, and all that belong to Kilion and Malon, their dead sons, also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, and that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. So the plan is Boaz is going to marry, he's going to buy the land, uh, if the Lord wills it, have a baby with Ruth, and set up this whole family Again, a restart on this land at great cost to himself. This doesn't help him at all. So Boaz declares in front of all these people his intentions. He's going to restart their family on their land. This is kind of crazy. I, last time I got a little emotional about it, <laughs> how crazy this is for Ruth and for Boaz. Um, last time I also talked about how unnecessary this was. This is totally unasked for. Naomi doesn't ask for this. Remember, no, Naomi's basically like, Ruth, get away from me. I'm deaf. Go get married with somebody else. Stay away from me. Ruth entangles herself back, stays with uh, Naomi. And Boaz, he doesn't have to do this either. This is at great cost to himself. But one thing that recurs throughout this book that we're going to get the chance to talk about now is that cousin, this guy could have followed all the rules and been totally within his rights to buy the land, hand Naomi a check, send her on her way, and never really care about Naomi or Ruth or those dead guys. He wouldn't have broken any of the rules, and nobody would have faulted him. There's a, there's a law in the book of Deuteronomy that we've talked about last time and a little bit today. Um, it's called the Leverite, Leverite Laws. And the Leverite Laws are that if, let's say there's me and I have a brother, let's say that my brother gets married and dies before they have any children. It's my responsibility, and this is a great salvation for everybody, this is good for everybody, if I'm going to, what would happen is I'm to marry my wife's widow, and we are to produce a child, and the first child that we have is my brother's child. And he gets all the inheritance from my brother. He gets my brother's last name. And it's, I don't get anything out of it. But this is how the Leverett laws worked. But neither cousin nor Boaz are technically Ruth's brother or Naomi's brother. So there's no requirement to marry Ruth or do anything like this, like Ruth is proposing. So on the one hand, cousin was completely in his rights to want 
to buy Naomi's land and have the payday, cha-ching. But he's missing, and Boaz kind of rubs his nose in it in front of all these elders, the whole point. God's laws and God's rules are not about staying inside the lines and checking off whether you did the right thing or did the wrong thing. They are for the greater purpose of loving God and loving your neighbor and loving even your enemy. That's the purpose of God's laws. It's not just a check mark. It's not some arbitrary thing that we're doing to keep him to be on his good side. He gives us his laws so that we know how to love people and what that looks like. Um, I heard it this way one time. God's commands are like the ground and the sky. The ground level is, for example, for example, the Ten Commandments are ground level. Ground level, for example, you shall not murder. You should not lie. You shall not commit adultery. You should honor your parents. These are like ground level. This is the ground. This is the base requirement, the bare minimum. And, you know, all these negative commands, especially in Ten Commandments, you shall not do this. You shall not do this. One reason it's a negative is because, like, this is the bottom. Just this is the very bare minimum. But I remember uh, growing up, happening was happening a lot, but I remember sitting in the back seat of my mom's car, and I remember my mom doing something where my mom turned around and exclaimed, don't hit your sister! I was probably hitting her. Um, maybe some of y'all as a parent can relate, or as a child can relate. Um, but this was a negative command. Don't hit your sister! That's the ground floor. <laughs> that was the ground floor, right? That's the bare minimum. But what would have really delighted my mom, Right? Yeah, sure, if I, don't, I mean, if I don't hit her, I could still be angry with my sister and not hit her. I could still not hit my sister, but just do it to get my mom off my back or something. Um, what would really delight my sister, I mean, my mom, who gave me this rule? It would be not just if I did not hit her, that's the ground, but what's the sky? What would the sky here be? It would be to love her. Love my sister, who I'm not supposed to hit. That's what my mom really wanted. That was the purpose, basically, of this rule. That was my mom's intention behind this rule. And what's ironic is, that's the floor, that's the ground and the sky. And the ground is very obvious. Don't do this. It's very checkmarky. Up here, there's lots, of, uh, there's lots of room for variation. There's lots of room for creativity. There's lots of room. What does it look like to love my sister? There's many ways I could love her. But what's ironic is that you can follow the letter of the law, and you can still break God's intention, his intentions up here in the sky. You can follow the letter of the law. You can actually follow the letter of the law and break the law at the same time. Uh, here's an example. Uh, an example would be the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment, if I remember correctly, is you shall not murder. Um, and you can do this with all the commandments, but here's the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That's the ground floor. Don't take life. Don't take life. Don't kill people that don't deserve it. Well, what's the sky? What's the sky? It's, it's, not some, it's not something you can so easily check off. It's something that you do. It's something that you are with someone. The sky is, don't take life, but give life. Seek the welfare of others. Seek, instead of taking the life, seek the life of others. Seek the flourishing of others. There's so many ways to apply the sixth commandment, do not murder. Seeking life for people. Cousin, okay, think about this. Cousin, he was keeping this commandment, right? He wasn't killing anybody. He wasn't like going crazy. He wasn't massacring the town uh, gate or anything like that. But was he at all attuned to the, attention, to the intention of the Sixth Commandment? To seek the welfare 
in the life of others that God had put into his life, such as Naomi? Was he really following the sixth commandment? No, he was not. He was only concerned with himself. My inheritance is going to be impaired. Oh. The image that comes to my mind of God's law when it comes to these things, it's like a geode. Uh, geodes, you're, if, you're probably into them at some point when you were a kid, or maybe your kids are. A geode is this thing that looks kind of plain and ordinary on the surface, but once you break it open and look inside, there's this trippy rainbow crystals, and you can't believe something was so beautiful inside of this rock. This is what God's laws are like. And Boaz is breaking these rules open. He's looking at them. He's, medita- he's been meditating on them. You know, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, they're all about meditating and understanding the beauty of God's law. Psalm 119 is like really long, but it's basically a love song to God's laws. Read it yourself. This guy's in love with God's laws. Boaz is, is here thinking, what, not what rules do I need to tick off the boxes to get through the day or to stay inside the lines. Not what requirements do I need to do, to follow, so I don't get in trouble with God. What the, but he's thinking, what, does the, what do these rules teach me about what delights God and what blesses others? This is the whole way this dude's living his life. This is the whole way Ruth is living her life. Well, how, can I, how, what is, how do God's laws point me to the sky when it comes to loving other people? Boaz, and Boaz is, by the aside, Boaz is totally being... Um, uh, influenced and uh, inspired by Ruth this whole time. She starts this all. She's the, power, she's the spark that starts all this. But he takes the beautiful intentions behind the, the rule about brothers marrying the brother's poor widow. He sees what the intention behind there is to take care of poor widows. And he runs with it to seek the welfare of Naomi. And it's easy to see the Christian life as just following a bunch of seemingly arbitrary rules. But the whole point of all these rules is love. God's love through us as we follow his commands to the sky. Um, it's worth asking, whenever we like, encounter an order from our supervisor, <laughs> from the Lord, why am I doing this? Why does the Lord want me to do this? Am I just supposed to check off a box here? Or is there something beautiful behind this that he has for me to do for him? What's the sky look like here? Is there someone, is there something bigger going on that I might not be able to see at this moment that God has for me to do and to experience and to live for? Boaz and Ruth are living for God's laws and the intention behind his laws because they know that he is trustworthy and his laws are good. This is the assumption that their soul rests on. What they're doing is that they are living here for something bigger than themselves. This is our second point. God is trustworthy. He is faithful. You should then, therefore, live for something bigger than you, a.k.a. live for him. Remember when I messed up on the floor in Monroe, Louisiana? Um, One thing I didn't realize was was that this little thing I was doing it was part of this bigger tapestry that my supervisor was weaving together with all these people and parts and chemicals to get this floor completed. What we get next in this story is a picture, finally, of the finished tapestry that's been, be- that's been being weaved together all throughout 
the book of Ruth, one, two, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and half before. Let's read the rest of our text. Boaz has just made this speech in front of all these people. And this is how the people respond, uh, starting in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, that's our clan, and be renowned in Bethlehem, their town. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I'll explain these names in a minute. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. So it's going to go all the way back in time to Perez, and then it's going to come back past Boaz. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, our, one of our heroes. Boaz fathered Obed, this baby. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the end of our text here. Um, notice at the end of this meeting, let's, look at, uh, let's go back to verse 11. What's going on here? So at the end of this meeting at the city gate, verse 11, the people, they compare Ruth to Rachel and Leah and Tamar. Now, if you don't know who these women are, the first two, Rachel and Leah, <coughs> they are the physical, biological mothers of all of Israel. They're Jacob's wives. It's a little more complicated than that. There's two other um, servants. We won't get into that right now. But uh, they are the mothers of all of Israel. Everybody here is descended, except for Ruth, I guess, because she's a foreigner, is descended from Rachel and Leah. This is their matriarch. And then there's Tamar. Tamar, another sordid story we can't get into, but Tamar is awesome, and Tamar is the mother of this tribe of Israel called Judah. So these are their mothers. These are their matriarch moms, um, Rachel and Leah and Tamar. And it's almost crazy, this comparison, what they're saying. They're saying, Boaz, your wife is like these heroes of our town, these heroes of our tribe, of our nation. These, they're comparing these matriarchs, these heroes, to what Ruth has done. We look back at this, but the story goes on, and we're going to see that they do get married. We look back on these matriarchs. So Ruth and Boaz, they get married, they have a son, and the women of the town bless the Lord for what he has done in opening the womb of Ruth. And Naomi, if you remember, she arrived back she arrived to Bethlehem in chapter 1, and she's empty, and she's bereft, and she's uh, got nothing, except for Ruth, who would never leave her. But now, here's the final picture, is there someone in her family to continue her family? And they name him Obed, and she's sitting with him. This is the final picture of them together. 
her holding this baby, whose name is Obed, and Obed means servant. And the idea is that he's going to raise up, he's going to take care of her as she gets old, until she dies. Then at the end, in verse 18, we get a 10-person genealogy spanning back to the tribe of Judah's inception, back to the tribe of Israel, inception, all the way down. And it turns out that Boaz and Ruth, they're the great-grandparents of the greatest king that Israel ever had. Okay, what does that have to do with our point that you should live for something bigger than yourself? Uh, you might know this, but there's this common reading of the book of Ruth where this is all a love story, and it's all about Ruth who gets swept off her feet and rescued out of destitution from this guy named Boaz, from this rich landowner. And she's just kind of like incomplete without him, and she needs a man to take care of him. And once they're married, you can stop holding your breath. Oh, she's finally found a man, and he's going to take care of her. And then they start a family, and they live happily ever after. That's like, that is a common reading of the book of Ruth. But this, we've read the book of Ruth. <laughs> this isn't about Ruth and Boaz starting a family, right? This is about Ruth and Boaz, Boaz rescuing a family. Um, I don't get the feeling that Boaz is giving meaning and significance to Ruth's life. I don't get the sense that having this baby Obed is giving meaning and significance and saving Ruth. She already has meaning and purpose already before she even meets Boaz. Her meaning and purpose is to serve the Lord and to love other people, to glorify God. She's not, uh, she's not um, incomplete. <laughs> and the responsibilities of life, the people that she is in relationship with in her life, these, all of these things, the responsibilities of life, her marriage, all of these things get subsumed under this bigger heading, this bigger purpose of hers, which is to serve her faithful Lord. And here's the thing about, here's what, what you can see all throughout this book, is that everything that she does is to love other people. It's, she lives a selfless life, and she inspires others to live selflessly. All the small mundane details are subsumed into this bigger purpose of serving the Lord. When you are serving the Lord, anything you do for him becomes this holy endeavor with eternal consequences. This is why they're talking about Rachel and Leah and David in this text. When Ruth took up and loved her mother-in-law, is this small, probably invisible thing to many people. But it was a holy, eternal endeavor on par with these heroes, with Rachel and Leah and Tamar. She would never, and Ruth would never know in her life what she did led to the birth of King David. We have a picture here in the time of Judges when everyone was living for themselves. This is what the culture in general probably always is like throughout history. It's people that are all living for themselves. Everyone living for themselves and taking care of themselves and everything was terrible at this time in history. And we have a picture here of two people quietly loving and living for the Lord by loving and living for others. Imagine, imagine if everyone in this book had done what was in the best interest of themselves. Imagine if everyone in this book had, was just living for themselves, was living for their own family, was living for their own future. I'm living for my own money and my own inheritance. I'm living to take care of me. I'm number one. What would have happened in this book? Nothing. 
Ruth would have never come back with Naomi. She would have stayed in Moab. Ruth would have died, and everything peters out, and there's darkness and death. This is what happens when we live for ourselves. The family's over. Naomi would have died. The floor is ruined. <laughs> the floor line, the end. The ironic thing is that if, as we live for our, if you live for yourself, to seek to preserve yourself and to prosper your own self, you live an insignificant life. It's trash. It's nothing. It's worthless. It's insignificant at best. It's evil at worst. Jesus puts it this way in Luke chapter 9. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's saying, if you live for me, you will get your life. There is no life before you serve me, before you trust me. He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? He has all the fields in the world. He has all the workers in the world. He has all the grain in the world. What good is it if you gain all that stuff and lose yourself? Forfeit yourself. Lose your own soul. Remember cousin? Remember cousin? He sought to preserve his own life. Right? He sought to preserve his own name and what happened at the end. We don't even know this dude's name. They intentionally left it out. Maybe they didn't know it because nobody cares about this guy anymore. He sought to preserve his life, and now he's Mr. No-Name. When you read the commentaries, this is, they have a name for this guy. It's Mr. No-Name in the commentaries. <laughs> God calls us, though, to live for something bigger, and that bigger thing we live for is him. And we can only do this, we can only be like Ruth, we can only be like Boaz if we trust him. Trust that he has forgiven us forgiven you for all the evil and selfish things you've done to preserve yourself. Those things, you weren't made for that. And you break people. You break and you hurt people around you when we do this. And just trust that he is faithful to bad people like me. And that he will never leave me or forsake me. The big overarching question here. Let's turn to the last few sentences. As we turn back to Naomi. because the, she's, the, she's the one that starts this out. She's the one who this ends on. The big overarching question in the book of Ruth, even though Ruth is, he, she is the hinge on which the story turns on, is Naomi's question. Remember in chapter 1, we compared her to the female Job. If you don't know Job, he's the biggest sufferer in the Bible. Or so we thought until we read Ruth chapter 1. It's actually Naomi. Remember her question when she's in distress and sorrow, depressed? Has the Lord left me? Has he abandoned me? Has his hand really gone out against me? Here we are at the end of the story. The story answers itself. Has he abandoned Naomi? Has he? Was the Lord worth Naomi putting her trust in as she did? Did he come true? Last question. Will he come through for you and prove himself faithful if you trust him? This book says he will. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to trust you, that you would take what Boaz and Ruth did, what you did through Ruth and Boaz, would you, would you use that to give us faith? Use your Holy Spirit to show us the work of grace that, is, that happens in the selfish world where everybody's serving themselves, and you came, you sent your son to live not for himself but for us. Help us to live for others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.